This is the Rolling Hills Message Podcast. Hey, I'm so glad that you decided to join us today. We are in the message series called Difference Maker, where we're looking at the life, the leadership, and the journey that Nehemiah took to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. I'm excited for you to continue in this message series. If you have not had the chance to start with us at the beginning, I would encourage you to stop this podcast, go all the way to back to week one, and learn what it takes to be a difference maker through the life of Nehemiah. We have been exploring this amazing piece of scripture where we're seeing Nehemiah do tough things in his leadership and rely on the strength of God. Let's go into week six of Difference Maker. Well, I wanna thank you for joining us today. If this is your first Sunday, one, can I say, give you an special thank you, uh, or maybe you're just returning, but it is important that you know that we recognize how, how hard and how much courage it takes to walk into a brand new place. And so thank you for displaying radical faith. That is something that we truly value here. And so we're glad that you are here living that out. You could have been anywhere else, but you're worshiping with us today. We have been in this message series called Difference Maker, where we're looking at the life, the leadership, and the journey that Nehemiah took. Uh, A man who had uh, insider knowledge and an insider position in the Babylonian period to the king of Babylon, King Artaxerxes, and his journey from hearing of the decimated uh, place that Jerusalem was to go all the way to Jerusalem to help rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. If you got your Bibles, I'd love for you to go to Nehemiah chapter 5. Uh, and as you're going there, let me just kind of recap a little bit what's going on. As we've said, Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king of Babylon, King Artaxerxes. He, he learned of Jerusalem's state. This broke his heart. He, he prayed. God strengthened his faith. Asked the king, can I leave my job for a while to go help my people, the Israelites? This, remember, Babylon's the one who put the Israelites in exile. So 70 years later, people are beginning to go back to Jerusalem. Roughly around 50,000 people have come back to Jerusalem, but they're living in a disgraced state. The city is in ruins. And so Nehemiah, who's got a broken heart for his people, go to Jerusalem to help rebuild the walls. The king blesses his endeavor. Not only does he bless his, his time off, but he gives him resources. Gives him wood from the forest to rebuild the gates. Gives him an army convoy to give him safe passage over 700 miles journey from Zusa, where he was at the capital of Babylon at the time, to Jerusalem. This is an incredible uh, feat that's taken place. The king uh, of Babylon who decimated their arch rivals, the Israelites, and he's blessing them to go back and rebuild. And what we've seen is Nehemiah, through his faith, is strengthened. He's inspiring others as a difference maker to that they can rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, that it is possible. But last week, as we looked at Nehemiah chapter 4, we see that in the process of rebuilding the walls, this has upset some of the Gentiles that are around them. Remember, there is a character by the name of Sanballat, and another by Tobiah, who is an Ammonite. These individuals, plus the Arabs, are upset that the Jews are coming back to this place. Remember, it was kind of like a free-for-all. So they've been in existence there. Sambalot had become good friends, and Tobiah had become good friends with the high priests, who've been back for over about 15 years now. They have insider privilege, but are outsiders on the faith. They're not God's chosen people. They've stirred up. There's a little bit of noise in chapter 2 that they're not happy that Nehemiah and his convoy and his inspirational speeches are taking place. 
And so last week, what did we see happen? They're building the walls, and a plot is made from the outsiders that they're going to kill Nehemiah and the builders. The Israelites learn about this plot and are terrified, are scared to death. But Nehemiah, if you remember, inspires them and says, don't be afraid of them. Remember that our Lord is great and awesome. And then what does he say? Do you remember how, how I jacked up I was last week? He says, fight for your sons and your daughters, for your husbands and your wives, for your homes. And we said that difference makers don't fight like hell. They fight with all of heaven. And remember, this plot that was made and brought to light, he says, don't be scared of them. They, they begin to, they set a guard in place uh, at all the gates. And so half the people were building, the other half were guarding the property. And did anything ever happen to the Israelites? No. Because when, when the enemy's plot is found out, he's done. And so whatever opposition that you might be going through, we said at the end that your opposition is actually an opportunity for God and his people to what? To fight for you. That's the God we serve. That's the people that we can belong to as the people of God. So they got the walls halfway built. That's where we ended off in chapter 4. But what we're going to see today is more opposition. You're like, man, this guy likes to talk about opposition. But this one's going to look different. This one, I think, is going to connect with you a lot more than maybe people from the outside or circumstances from the outside. So even though the walls are being built and the people are beginning to have a sense of hope and protection, they're making great progress. The problem outside was being remedied. There's still a major problem of sin that's festering inside the walls. See, this was sin of greed, of usury, of injustice towards the poor. And until this point, it had really had gone unnoticed or even discussed. See, the problem existed within the hearts of man and was, was just as much more of a threat to making an actual difference than the opposition that they were experiencing in chapter 4 from the outside of the walls. So if you've got your Bibles, Nehemiah chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 1 today. It says this, Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, We and our sons and our daughters are numerous, and in order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Hey, obviously, in order for us to survive, we need to eat, right? Verse 3, Others were saying, We're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during this famine. Still others were saying, we have to borrow money to pay for the king's taxes on our fields and our vineyards. Although we are the same flesh and blood, our fellow Jews, and, or as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to be subject, we have to subject our sons and our daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. So just to understand really what's happening here is that the Jews, the, the, those who are kind of in the social economic status of, uh, of on the lower end of things, are struggling to make ends meet. Some don't have food whatsoever. It's a famine that's happening. And so some are borrowing money against their fields and against their homes to get this food and are going into foreclosure. Uh, some are having to borrow money just to pay their taxes 
to the king of Babylon on their fields. And then some are having to actually put their own kids into slavery to make ends meet. And they can't do anything now because their fields that are being foreclosed on are now owned by others. More importantly, what's happening is that conflict is happening. It's existing. There's opposition that's happening within the inside. And uh, can I just say a hard truth? Conflict is inevitable. You can probably resonate with this already. You might have had conflict with your spouse on the way here today. But it's especially hard to, it's especially hard to experience in, in internally. If you ever have contact with people, you will one day experience a conflict with them. Even your closest, deepest, awesome friend. They could be in full agreement with you. You can agree with everything with them. I'm certain that there's probably somewhere conflict will exist. Why? We're human. We're naturally flawed. We're selfish. And we think about ourselves before others. And when we do that, conflict begins to exist. We misunderstand others and their intentions. We, we often grow offended. But today what we're going to do is we're going to look at not just the Nehemiah story, but we're going to look at all throughout Scripture as to how we, how we resolve this intimidating thing that we can call conflict. Matthew uh, records Jesus' words in chapter 18, starting in vi- verse 15. If another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back. But if you aren't successful, take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything that you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. He early, early says this in Matthew 5, says, therefore, if you are offering a gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or your sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary. See, these passages, if you look, view them together, form a very dynamic, uh, a powerful dynamic of conflict resolution. See, we have offended someone at some point. We should go to them to make those mends. Someone has offended us. We should go quickly to them to make amends. Uh, in either case, Jesus is calling us to take the first step towards pursuing peace with others. So if you're taking notes, the first thing I want you to write down is this. Difference makers passionately pursue peace. This is what they're about. They're about unity. That the common unity, the community exists together. It's hard for us to have peace when when there's not unity. I think of Paul when he writes in Romans 12, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. He later writes in Romans in chapter 14, verse 19, says, let us therefore make every effort to do what it leads, that what leads to peace and to mutual edification. And then the writer of Hebrews writes this in chapter 12, make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy because, say it with me, without holiness, No one, can we take that back? (laughs) Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And this is critical for us. I want this slide to stay up here. 
This is critical for us to see because holiness is, is in right state. That's, that's God's state. He's always holy. He's perfect. He's, he's everything that's in existence. The reason that we can't have a connection with, with God is because of our sin. Sin is not holy. It's actually unholy. And so the Scripture tells us, be holy as I am holy. So if we are not living in peace, we are in sin. If we are in sin, we're not holy. And if we're not holy, no one will see Jesus in us. This is important for us to grasp, church. One of our things that we're becoming very passionate about is being, we're in this community of North Topeka, right? We're in it and we're for it. And I would ask the question, do people know you and see Jesus? Do people see Jesus in you? You answer that question by the way we, we evaluate the way we live. We evaluate that question based on our interactions with our neighbors. Especially that one whose leaves are never picked up. It's got those feral cats always running around. And how do we respond? How do we respond to that coworker who just, man, just gets under our skin? You know who I'm talking about. Do our kids, do they know Jesus through the way we live and we act in parents, whether they're out of the house or in the house? We answer that question based off the reputation that we have started, I say started because we can always change our reputation, that we've started outside of these four walls. Do people see Jesus in the way that you live? See, I think if you take the, the, the effect of all these verses, there leaves no room for complacency or passivity. Instead, they challenge us, sincere Christians, fully devoted followers of Jesus, to cry out for the Spirit, the Holy Spirit's help in this daunting task of conflict resolution. Which is why we said difference makers passionately pursue peace. See, Nehemiah... We get to see how godly of a leader he is. How godly of a person he is. Because he hears of the sin. He doesn't ignore it. He doesn't just let it work itself out. He listens to their response. And look how he responds. Verse 6. When I heard their cry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. So let's, let's break this down just a little bit. Nehemiah didn't hear this injustice that made him angry and then respond. He didn't just irrationally react and go hang out the nobles and the officials out to dry. He didn't, he didn't challenge their character in front of everybody. He didn't call them out so, and said, make them look how stupid they were how wrong they were. What does he do? It says he ponders. The Hebrew word simply means, I'm not going to even try to pronounce it for you, but it simply means to counsel or to consult yourself. So what he does is when he hears of the injustice that's happening to those who are poor, 
the people that are having to put their kids in slavery just to make ends meet, those who are simply trying to, to, to get by, he steps back and he begins to get the 30,000 foot view of the situation. He begins to evaluate. I'm certain, it doesn't say in here, but I'm certain that he prayed. We see that multiple times already through the first five chapters. How often did he pray? He goes, Lord, help me out. He gains wisdom. He gains discernment. He doesn't just respond and, and throw a ruckus. No, he, he takes a deep breath. That's what I like to call woosah, woosah. He takes a moment and pauses. And then he accuses. Now, how many of us are guilty of just saying something out after we've been upset immediately, almost out of a knee-jerk reaction? Uh, you think of your marriage. Maybe it's in a conversation with your spouse that has made you upset. And instead of pondering, you resort to maybe your past hurts or you start name-calling. Maybe you read something on social media that completely contradicts your, your political bias. And you read something and go, oh, I'm going to show them. And you type away. You let them have it because you're going to let them know that they're wrong for the whole interwebs to see, right? By the way, arguing and conversations on social media have never worked. Just saying. <laughs> Maybe it's when dis disciplining your kids, when they, they do something that you believe they should have known better. And you just... Take it a little bit too far. See, Nehemiah could have easily reacted out of his anger, but he didn't. He considered all the facts of the story. He didn't, just, he didn't just respond. He took in all the information before he took the next step. And then it says he accused the nobles and the officials, right? So after he had considered all the, the information that he heard, he went to the people he believed to be wrong for this injustice. The nobles and the, and the officials. Because we don't see in the accusation in the first five verses, they did this. He, does, he, he considers who's involved here. Look at this, verse 7. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. This is what's happening. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them. And said, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Meaning in the exile, they were taken as slaves, and so they bought them back. Now, we are, now you are selling your own people, only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could not find nothing to say. He does what Jesus would later instruct in history. Look at this. He went to the right party, privately, held a meeting with all of them. And quickly had a meeting, right? Because that's what we've read already in, in, his, in his instructions in Matthew. It's to go privately and to go quickly. And then to do what? Point out the wrong. Here's where you are sinning, people. And this is what Nehemiah does. He, and they had nothing to say. Have you ever been in that spot before? You're in the complete wrong. Someone's letting you know that you were wrong. Typically, we, if we're humble enough, we won't say anything because we know we are wrong. 
The only time that we fire back or get defensive is when there's pride. We don't want to be, we don't want to be called out like that. We quickly put it back right back on them. But Nehemiah did it in a godly way. Because when we do things godly ways, it works out in a godly way, right? But I'm certain they're starting to feel shame and guilt and embarrassment. Whatever feelings that you've probably felt in, that, in those situations, they're feeling them right now. And he continues, look at this, verse 9. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Another accusation. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men were also lending people money and grain. But let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, oil, uh, gro- or olive groves, and houses, and also the interest you are charging them. One percent of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. Verse 12. Look, at, look how they respond. I love this. When we are humbly in our place, when we recognize where we are wrong, this is how they respond. They respond this way. We'll give it back. We will give it back. And we will not demand any more from them. We will do as you say. And then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. He calls in the pastors. All right, we're going to hold everyone accountable here. You've promised me. Now I want you to tell the pastors that you're going to keep your promise. No longer are you going to charge people interest. No longer are you going to lord over your people who are disadvantaged. Nehemiah instructs him to make it right. Give their fields back. Give the interest that you gained from them. Nowhere should we, as, as people who got a little bit more of a privilege, should be holding that over anybody. We're the same. Why, why should we gain off of their despair? And they respond. We'll give it back. But I want to point out something that I found really interesting. I found it interesting as I read this, and you might have missed it as I read it, but and maybe it stuck out to you, but I've, I've read this a couple times now, and this was the first time it's, it popped out. Look at the end of verse 10. It's going to be on the screen. But let us stop charging interest. He doesn't say, you guys stop charging interest. It says, let us stop charging interest. At the beginning of verse 10, it says him and his brothers were lending money and grain out to people. Nehemiah is just as guilty as the nobles and the officials. He's doing the exact same thing. He's charging interest. He was just as guilty. And I'm certain while he was pondering, I'm sure he saw himself in the equation of not helping out his own people. The people that broke his heart when he learned that they were in despair, that the walls were broken down. And the, the people that he mustered up enough faith to go to the king and say, hey, can I get some time off to go help my people? The people that he made the 700-mile journey just to go back to help rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. The same people that he inspired to be the builders of the walls. These people, he himself was taking advantage of. And this is important for us to see because, yes, he's guilty. But Nehemiah does something that's really important for us to see. See, Jesus tells us when confronting others, judging others, holding other people accountable, what does he say? Matthew 7. 
starting in verse 5. This is Jesus in, in the Sermon on the Mount. You hypocrite. First take out the plank of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now this verse is one of those, one of those tense verses. Because I'm certain if you've been in the church and you're, you're married, you might have said this to your spouse. They come to you with a problem. You're like, oh, check the plank in your own eye first, Patty. You know, check your plank. I've only got a speck. You know, whatever that argument might be, we'd use it. We've even said this. Well, you can't judge me. Look at the way you live. We take this verse for its meaning as a defense mechanism to actually be corrected. But what Nehemiah does, and I can assume while he was pondering, he realizes his own brokenness and is humbled that he is also a part, a part of the problem. Because this verse that Jesus is sharing with us that to remove the plank out of our own eye is extremely important. And what he's saying is he's challenged the religious leaders, but he's also challenged all who listen and all who read it. For us, when we go to confront somebody of sin, of a wrongdoing, he wants us to be in a place that is, that is of clear mind, of conscience. For us, it would, be, it would make no sense. I'll put myself on the block. I don't want to put any of you. It would make no sense for me to go out and challenge someone in here that's having an affair while I'm out having an affair. It'd make no sense. No, I'm not having an affair. I saw some jaws drop. No, not even close. <laughs> not even close. So I said I put myself on the block. It would, it would be you who has an anger problem, challenging your spouse or a coworker who also has an anger problem. That you're not even fixing yours, but you're going, man, you're always angry. You're ticked. You need to knock it off. What it's challenging the reader the listener, is for us to humbly consider where we are in wrong standing with God before we go and challenge somebody else's wrongdoing. And oftentimes, we do a pretty good job at this because one of the things that we at the church has become known for is judging others. But not judging internally, well, some of that. More importantly, those who don't subscribe to the same morals as we do. They don't even believe that the Word of God is the Word of God. We want to say the person who's living out in sin, that they're, that they're wrong, that they're, and yes, they are according to God's standards, but they're not following God's standards. What this is meant for is for the internal peace. This is meant for believer to believer, not believer to non-believer. The non-believer, when they come to know Jesus, will learn slowly the new standard. They'll slowly learn the new morals. That's where grace comes in. That's where all that fun stuff comes in. But this is meant for you and I, for the believer, for us to hold each other accountable. There's too many times in Scripture, because we want to say, Christians, you're not supposed to judge. You're right. We're not supposed to condemn people to hell. We're not going, oh, yeah, you're for certain going to heaven. I don't know your life. I'm not God. But it's this, it's this whole concept of us <laughs> of holding people accountable. It's whole, it, too many times in Scripture it says encourage or to spur on, to challenge, to live in a godly way. We do that when we consider where we are wrong with God first and then make amends, which is what Nehemiah does. If you're writing anything down, write this down. 
Difference makers own their wrongdoings. I messed up. I sinned. I was wrong. They own it. And then they make it right. And this is what Nehemiah does. He humbles himself to his own wrongdoings, not only before himself and God, but with others. The others who are doing the wrong. The nobles and the officials and the priests, but then he ultimately has to humble himself and say, I'm sorry to the people that he's taking advantage of. To make it right. And I love his heart. Look at, look at verse 19. I love his heart. Remember me with favor, my God, for all I have done for these people. At first, when I read that, it was, God, I'm trying to lead them as best as possible. And they're just, they're messing it up. But when I see the let us stop charging interest, he's putting himself in the mix of it. He's going, I haven't done this perfectly, God. We still have favor on me and my endeavor? Know my heart, Father. I, don't, I didn't mean to do this. What, would you continue to bless this endeavor? Would you continue to make... Remember the prayer from chapter 1? It says, make, make this successful. He's going, God, I love these people. I did them wrong in this, but I'm making it right. Would you continue to have favor on me? Would you have favor on all of us who still are dealing with sin? The sin that ultimately caused us in this entire exile 70 years ago. God, would you make this right? So we must consider when we are engaging conflict with others, especially internally, how what Nehemiah and Jesus has shown us in Scripture. The first one is this. Go to them privately. Nowhere do we have a wrongdoing. Do we go straight to social media and go, look what this idiot did. Or do we go just go blab to somebody else? They're, I can't believe this person did this to me. I, can't believe, I just can't believe it. Or mutter the stuff passive-aggressively under our breath, intending for everyone to hear, including the person who did it wrong. Then what do we do? We go quickly. We don't let the, the problem manifest itself and fester into something bigger than what it really is. I think... Let's call it seven out of ten times. I have no research. I'm just guessing off of my own life. Seven out of ten times that we let something go, meaning that we don't actually say, hey, this hurt me, or hey, this was wrong. It tends to fester into something bigger than what it was. And that's the power of sin. Sin, if undealt with, grows. James tells us that, that, that the conception of sin happens, and if it's not dealt with, that it's birth and to death. Sin ultimately ruins us. It also tells us to go humbly. For us to consider ourselves. To consider what's in our lives. We don't have to go to the person who's got a wrongdoing. Or some offense that we have with them. It's us going, hey. I'm not perfect either. But this hurt. This was sin. This was wrong. I love you. I'm here with you. I'm going to journey with you in this and we'll figure this out together. I'm already forgiving you, but this really hurt. Like I said, I don't have this figured out. But I want us to do this together. That's, that's humbly, not going, you 
are wrong, and I'm letting everyone know about it. No, it's us humbly. And we share with them our grievances, right? Well, Matt, what happens when they don't hear it? They're going, no, you just, you see it wrong. Jesus tells us, take two or three others with you. After you've already tried once, take two or three others with you. Say, hey, now you've got some witnesses. This was wrong. If they still don't listen, they still don't repent, they still want to go, no, you're wrong. What are you supposed to do then? Jesus says it. Go to the church. Meaning, go to the leadership. The pastors, the elders. Bring the grievances to them. And then all of you, not the entire church, all of you, go and confront that person. And ultimately, if they don't repent, and they don't re make this offense um, forgiven, then unfortunately, the church goes, we can't have you here anymore. And that's, that's hard to say. But this is what Jesus tells us to do. Because sin inside the body of Christ cannot, will kill the body of Christ. It's like cancer. We need to rid it. And this is how we rid it between each other. Because guess what? I probably will sin against you at some point. <gasps> the pastor said it. Yes, I'm a human too. And you will sin against me. But how we deal with it matters. And that's what Nehemiah ultimately shows us, that it matters. When we passionately pursue peace as believers, unfortunately, this is something that the church is not known for. We're not known for unity. We're not known for that at all. I mean, just look at all the quarrels that we have between denominations and the arguments on theology. Just in those alone, we're not known for being united. I mean, we're watching a denomination right now that has the word united in their name that is separating. And that just breaks my heart. We should be in pursuit of peace. Look what, look what David writes in Psalms 133. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It's, it's sweet. It's good. It's pleasant. Paul writes this in Colossians. He gives us a little bit more instructions. Bear with each other. Meaning, you're gonna, you have to grunt it a little bit. And forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone... Forgive as the Lord as forgives you. That's huge. C.S. Lewis, I'm going to butcher the quote, but one of my favorite quotes by him says that, that we are called to forgive the inexcusable because God has already forgiven the inexcusable in us. So it says, forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. Verse 14, all and over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect, say it with me, Unity. This is, key, this is key. This is key for us as a church. Uh, I mentioned last week, you know, it's as we've kind of set off in a, in, a, in a new direction. Last week we talked about how personally some of us are experiencing opposition from the outside. It's an overbearing boss. It's that bad news from the doctor. It's death. It's Fill in the blank. But trust me, church, when the tactic is done on the outside, the devil says in Luke, when he's tempting Jesus, will come back for another opportune time. 
which means internally. So church, it matters how we deal with conflict. It matters how we fight for unity with each other. That there's a grievance between any of us that we fight for the unity. So church, can we be the church that is willing to fight for unity among each other? Let's be the believers that, that others see that no longer quarrel with each other, but radically love one another. Let's be the church that's not known for what we're against, but what we're for. Let's be the church that doesn't, that doesn't love because of our differences, but rather loves despite our differences. Isn't that what Jesus did for us? He forgave us. He came for you. He came for me. Passionately pursuing our peace with God to make it right with God. I don't know where you sit in life today, but I can tell you this, that God loves you so much that he sent his one and only son to passionately pursue peace with you, union, which means, break it down into its Latin word, unity, to oneness, so that we could experience life to the fullest. But he calls us too, as his people, his disciples, to do that with each other. I can say this, it's hard to have unity with God when we have discord with others. As we get ready to sing another song, I want to sh share with you, I want to share with you, it's hard to say it, I want to share with you, this is not easy. This is actually, it's easy to say it right now actually, but to live it out. See, I'm aware as a, as, a, as a teacher, I'm actually judged based on what I teach. So lucky for you, you're probably not going to be judged as much unless you teach in this capacity. But what I mean by that, this is, this is something that gives me personal anxiety. Is that when there's not just conflict, but the resolution to conflict. For me, I wish we could all just be skipping around and be unicorns and rainbows all day long. Nope. <laughs> but I want us to experience the fullness of God's joy, of his mercy, of his grace, of his love. And that happens when we settle our grievances with each other. We're about to take communion, and I don't want to steal away from the communion meditation, but it says in Scripture from Paul, before you take in communion, that you settle your grievances. Today, I would challenge you, as a believer, if you've got something that's unsettled with somebody, settle it today. You need to call your mom and, and, and ask for forgiveness, or you need to say, hey, I, I forgive you, even though you didn't ask. Maybe it's not your mom, maybe it's a kid of yours. Maybe tomorrow when you go into work, you need to settle a grievance that you have with a fellow employee or a coworker. But church, when we go back to that Hebrews, that it's hard for Jesus to be seen in our lives when we're not living holy lives. 
And we begin to walk in holiness when we settle grievances the way that the Lord shows us through his word. Today, if you do not have a relationship with Jesus, you need to know that he settled the grievance with you already. And it's a free gift. It's totally yours. Forgiveness of all your sins, of all your grievances against God, he's already made a way for you to be forgiven, settled in his, in his, in his kingdom, and made right. Maybe you do know Jesus, but you've been living a life that's not pleasing to him and you know it and today you need to make the decision today's the day I'm going to set reset I'm going to this is the catalyst the moment that I step out in faith and say all right I need to be forgiven father today I'm starting new if I can encourage you to do that today uh, I am actually and I'd love for you to experience the joy and the peace that that comes when we accept Jesus's love and his passion for our hearts Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would just have your way in us. That you would work in our hearts, you would manifest your Holy Spirit in our lives. God, to give us wisdom and encouragement. Father, we ask that you would help us settle grievances with others. But more importantly, I pray for the one in this room, God, who has separation from you, whether they don't have a relationship or, God, it's been a while. God, would you renew them? through your love, through your forgiveness, through your grace. And God, would they just be overwhelmed by your, by your spirit of just how great you are. Father, help us to be your church. I pray all these things through your son Jesus. Hey, once again, we're so glad that you decided to join us today. I believe that you are a difference maker. I believe God has created you in this time, in this place, to make a difference for his kingdom. And I want to invite you into that. If you're exploring what this even looks like for you in the life that you're living, God has a deep desire for you to make the difference in the world that you're living in. Let us know how we can support you by emailing us at matt at rhcctopeka.org. And we'd love to hear on how we can support you. And until next time, be blessed.